warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. The Real Britannia podcast, a very British podcast about very British movies. Just a hint of professionalism once again. If you were privy to the conversation we have had seconds ago, <laughs> Tony's Tony's laugh says it all. Scott here, hi, right, with me is Tony and Stephen. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello. <laughs> this is Second why I like. I like the three of us getting together because you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> Or if it's going to happen. If is a yes. big one. If, mm. if, because this is our second attempt at recording this particular episode. We tried last week, but it wasn't technical difficulties for once. It was the fact that Tony had to be Superman for the morning and, and go on a rescue mission. I did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we sat down to record and, and Tony got this frantic phone call that his friend had broken down. So he had to go off and rescue him, as Tony always does. Good egg that he is. Um, yeah, the scary thing is when he's living in a car when I got there. Just walking around aimlessly, around the streets of Medway. <laughs> like most people do, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How do you pick him out from the rest? <laughs> it, it, it does look like a scene of from um, Night of the Living Dead down Chatham High Street some days. I'll, I'll be... <laughs> um, now, as we stand, guys, we're at sort of early October, we're recording this, and we're sort of catching up on the backlog. I'm hoping this particular episode will go out just before Christmas at the rate we're, we're getting these episodes out. If it doesn't, uh, Happy New Year, guys. Yeah, Happy New Year. Yeah. And we still haven't got any petrol. Um, <laughs> Did you get a turkey for Christmas? Quiet. Were the turkeys in the store? It's all right. You, you don't need petrol because there's nothing in the shops to go by anyway. So. <laughs> no, there was no turkeys. I just had some vegan cheese because that was all things we left in the you know what? We're going to look back on this episode and it's going to be like Nostradamus, mate. I tell you, we've predicted exactly what Christmas is going to be like. Any the one that does all the sex positions? Nostradamus, yes, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> like predictive sex. Hey! I will end it there. <laughs> You've been listening to the Royal Botanic Podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Enough oh. of this hilarity. Stop enjoying yourself. We never normally enjoy ourselves this much we, on a Sunday. We do not, no. Unless it's at somebody else's expense. <laughs> yeah, usually mine. <laughs> right, the three of us are together. So, it's a war film. We sort of... Yeah, we're sort of drifting towards war films whenever the three of us are about, you know, and especially for Tony, because Tony's a big fan of the British war movie. We all love the violence, you see. Is that what it is? It's the blood and the guts. Well, this one isn't particularly violent, is it? It's a naval one. We haven't really, apart from Above Us the Waves, I think, we haven't really covered any naval war movies, have we? No, it was uh, in which we serve, wasn't it? Sorry, in which we serve, but we always get those two mixed up, don't we? Yeah, and you you, you always call well. you always call it above us only the waves. Yeah, <laughs> do you know what we want? So, should we so none of us that? can get it right? No, let's we, face it. Should we, we just stop now? Yeah, should we just review that <laughs> next week and then it's over and done with? <laughs> 
It's the Gruel Sea from 1953. So with the war films, I mean, Tony will often pick something that he's familiar with and that he loves and he wants to sort of like talk about it with us guys. Have you seen this one, Tony? No. Okay, first time watch. First time watch. Okay. Yeah, I hope to watch it at least once now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. prior to last week's recording, he had actually watched it sort of like the day before, not the hour before recording, which is what he normally does. amazing. But then Thank I was you. just saying to you guys, I, I watched this film nearly two weeks ago, so you may have to remind me about a few of the really important points. Well, that's, I haven't watched it since, so this is all down to Stephen today. Okie doke, that's what we're relying on. And a bit of Wikipedia. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, then without further ado, we're back to nineteen fifty-three. Jack Hawkins in the crawl seat back after this. Thank <laughs> you. 
Cyprus on RT, plain language. Say torpedo 15 miles astern. All right. Okay, that's The Crawl Seat, released in the UK, 1953. Starring Jack Hawkins, Donald Sindon, Denham, Elliot, Stanley Baker. We've got Bruce Seton. He's quite high up on the list. Bruce Seton, Bruce Seton. Now, he's going to be knocking on the door of the Village Hall of Fame a little later, because I know that's a familiar name to us now. Virginia McKenna's in there. We've got Glyn Houston, Alec McCall. This is a great list. Alec McCowan. Directed by Charles Friend. Produced by Leslie Norman, Barry's dad. The synopsis, classic documentary-style account of the trials of a British warship during World War II. A captain is haunted by the loss of his past vessel and seeks revenge. Long movie for us, two hours, one minute. Yeah. But it covers a long period of time as well, doesn't it, this one? Oh, well, the entire war. It does, it really? Yeah. Did, did anybody sort of get that? Because at some point it sort of jumped, didn't it, a couple of times? And it's the only way I recognised that there was a jump in the action sometimes was the colour of Jack Hawkins' hair got lighter. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't notice it at all, to be honest. <laughs> what, that this was spread over six years? Yeah, no, I didn't notice that at all. I noticed that obviously that they had their ship destroyed and they went on a new one, but. Yeah, I read this in some reviews. People found it a bit disconcerting a bit that they couldn't work out that there was a jump in the narrative sometimes oh, at least it wasn't well, just me then oh, it makes no. me a lot happier yeah. I think they tried in the film to give that away to people by the, the points at which they were saying there was the radio announcement about what was going on in Dunkirk mm. there was the change to the Atlantic fleet going through Russia and stuff yes. there was things that they gave away as being like touchstones within the war and that was their attempt and obviously if you've been watching it in 1953 you'd probably be able to know you know, which year that happened. Yeah, if you know your, your history. History. yeah. Whereas, apart from yourself, Scott, none of us were, were around then. There so, go. That's the um, first one today. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I was there. I was on board. Yeah, you were. That's, it. That's where you originally came from, just floating in the sea and the picture up. Yeah. But no idea about your origin. No. So, yeah, so I think they're trying to give that away subtly, but it was obviously too subtle for anybody who wasn't alive in those times and doesn't have a more in-depth knowledge of the timeline of, of the war. So you've got to pick up on the signs of gradually lacing hair and etc. Yeah. So I just read in some reviews that people weren't quite aware of that, that side of the story. and they, they, they said they found it a bit disconcerting or, or, you know, a bit confusing when it jumped. But I didn't. Like you, Stephen, if, if you were aware of a bit of military history or whatever, you know the passage of time in this film. The, the narrative is is such that you can put that aside in a way. You don't need to be thinking about it as how long it takes over as far as timelines because you've got basically uh, two ships, as it turns in the end, yep. uh, two ships sort of trying to avoid the enemy and, and such like. And you don't, unusually for a war film, you don't really see the, the enemy no. at all. There's one point at which the, the uh, closer towards the end, they do come face to face of the enemy but apart from that it's an avoidance tactic and been at sea there's long periods of nothing happening although you're on edge in this situation 
any minute something could happen. This film is filled with plot without it being that there's something dramatic happening or, or at least, you know, highly dramatic. They're not having a battle every few minutes, but there's still momentum in the actual plot. And a lot of that is to do with the human interest part of it. Um, I think that the key thing is how it starts off the film and um, why it's saying that the voiceover you know, at the beginning. Yeah. Right. Uh, let me um, read this out because you just literally just summed up that sentence, mm-hmm. mate. Exactly. That's right. Jack Hawkins, the first things you hear uh, at the beginning of the movie he says this is a story of the battle of the atlantic the story of an ocean two ships and a handful of men the men are the heroes the heroines are the ships the only villain is the sea the cruel sea that man has made more cruel and you're right because it's it's about how people interact we've got some new crew members that we meet right at the beginning and we see their development guys don't we as they become inexperienced officers into battle-hardened veterans you know and how people interact with jack hawkins's command and how he reacts to certain situations and quite dramatic events like you say and the loss of a ship and the gaining of another one tony yes First impressions on your first watch, mate. Did you like this one? Because war films can be a bit hit and miss with you sometimes. Uh, do you know, I liked it from the get-go when good. he actually read out what you just said. Yeah, you knew you were in for a good couple of hours. Yeah, right? yeah, straight away it got me there. And I enjoyed it from there on, really. So for you, lots of familiar faces. Typical British war movie for you. Definitely. And like Steve had said, had a bit of everything going on, you know. You had some battle scenes, you had some, you know, their personal life as well. You get a sort of sense that a lot of them are just sort of been plucked out of their everyday job and just thrown on a ship. But wasn't Donald Sindon, guys, wasn't he? It was his freelance reporter. That was it, it was a reporter. So he'd gone through, like, officers' school in, like, six weeks or whatever it was. And uh, Again, it's the development, isn't it, of that character. You think, oh, my God, this is going to be a clash. You know, this is going to be the the battle of wills between Donald Sindon and Jack Hawkins. But it it, it isn't. They all work together, don't they, these guys? because they know that the, the enemy obviously is the U-boats in the Atlantic and not each other. And that's kind of at the early part of this, it's established that when the captain, Jack Hawkins, uh, you know, is picking up upon these, what did people do beforehand? And there's, mm. um, at a certain point, Denham Elliott, appears and he's a, he was a barrister before and he's the only one that really has experience previously but he certainly makes his mark early on by the fact that this is quite subtle as well he overhears um stanley baker's character being an ass mm. to these new recruits uh, and then immediately calls him up about something else uh, to come and speak to and then basically puts him in his place making sure he knows that he's going to ride him hard and if that's what he expects to do over people he's going to get it himself and that sort of humanity from Jack Hawkins' character, which runs all the way through the film, there's some very key moments throughout the entire film yes. where that humanity is shown. The tough decisions and how it is um, not just commanding a, a vessel, but managing people. It drew me in straight away, uh, that strength to the whole film, rather than, to some extent, the, the war is a backdrop to build the rest of it on, rather than the war being the primary focus, really. Jack Hawkins um, is central to this whole thing, isn't he? Yeah. He's, he does dominates every scene and every well, every scene that he's in and it's marvellous to say I think this is the movie that is the touchstone I think for people that you know when you want a great Jack Hopkins performance I mean we've seen him in The League of Gentlemen which was slightly more comedic but this as you said Stephen he runs through every single emotion in this movie yeah. even down to crying breaking down at one point frustration anger the whole thing and it's not just the Germans that are the enemy I think at the beginning isn't it? Isn't it sort of like the weather sort of dictates how this story first starts can you remember yeah they're all bailing out and they're rowing up and 
hoping that was seawater. Uh, like they say, the, the worse the weather, the better it is for them. More chance they've got of surviving. Because the U-boats can't detect them. Yeah, it's hard to see. Mm. They didn't want clear days. Yeah. Again, it's stuff I wasn't aware of. I mean, I was aware of the Battle of the Atlantic, you know, certain parts of it. But to actually be almost part of the there. crew. Yeah, you were there. Yeah, exactly. Any standout scenes, guys? Anything really stand out for you? When they run over the British survivors because there was a U-boat nearby. Oh, oh is that the bit where... um? He gets called a bloody murderer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful because that shows the tough decisions needing to be made in war. And then it follows on from that scene that there's great scenes with the, him reconciling that, still feeling incredibly guilty about it. And that's showing, like you say, with the crying and the, the lashing out to some extent to Donald Sinden, who completely understands why he, he is being moody and yeah. stuff. And then sort of, the, the catharsis of the um, the Norwegians that he previously saved mm. coming to toast him and them actually then talking to him about what he had to do in that situation and with the British survivors and from their point of view of people who were bobbing about in the water how what their perspective on what he did was giving him some sense of closure on it that runs on from that scene for a certain part of the movie thankfully because it needed to be shown that it wasn't just a flippant thing that people in, in war despite there being an enemy and, and they felt guilty about killing the enemy as well as you know sometimes the what is now called collateral damage or, you know, friendly fire. Um, yeah. friendly fire and stuff and I think all the way through this that the cost of war is shown the sad loss of Meg Jenkins character mm. and the way that plays out that, that played out thousands and thousands of times people coming back home yeah. and finding that their loved ones were gone as well as those who were at home finding the trope that you have of the people on the home front getting a, a telegram or getting a visit to tell them that their their loved one has died at sea or died in yeah. the desert or there's you know some battle or whatever or the plane's gone down. Mm. This is you know showing it that it happened the other way around. It's reversed. You know, come yeah. back, yeah. come back as a serving serving in the military. You come back and find out that your your loved ones they were no longer there and you were fighting to protect them and you hadn't been able to in that sense. And that again is, for me, is, is another scene. I still agree with Tony that the one, what he described as running over the, mm. the survivors. I think that the, the scene with going back to the streets of Liverpool and finding out about the loss on the home front is key as well. That's quite dramatic. There's a lot of pathos all the way through this film, which carries it, in my opinion, that showing so many different aspects of the war without it feeling like it's separate stories or disjointed. It's not separate vignettes. It's it's all there to sort of together and works as one, which is fantastic. All needs to be there. It all tells part of yeah. the same story. And yeah. I saw this years and years ago, and in my mind, I'd forgotten all the home front part of it. I just remember this all being entirely set at sea on one boat. I just thought it was one mission on one boat that's how I remembered it and you're talking about tropes there's a scene on the lifeboats when the, when the ship is sunk his first ship is sunk and they all get together on the lifeboat and I'm thinking oh we're going to get one of those over dramatic sort of survival stories now where they're at sea for like three days waiting to be rescued and they all reveal their innermost thoughts and fears but it turns out to be a really effective scene that scene in the lifeboats it just breaks up the tension of all the battles that we experience in, in the two hours you get as Stephen said the human interest side of things you get to find out the inner workings of each of the characters on that lifeboat and what they're you know they're sort of on their backs 
floating in the water, drifting in and out of, of consciousness, that the, the voices in their heads are what have been replayed as conversations, either people on the home front, either the somebody who's lost to them or somebody who is deliberately leaving them. As I say, that, you know, is a peek behind the curtain and the, there's an attempt at the, st- at the British stiff upper lip Mm-hmm. Um, thing of singing to keep them uh, going or Jack Hawkins uh, you will stay asking, awake you know, doing yeah. a pop quiz uh, and asking them <laughs> but, and uh, what happens when one of the group does pass on and they yes. basically just, just set them adrift um, and make space on the lifeboat for, for one of the ones that's clinging on to the side and that practicality of it all and it's a, a peek in but it's as you say it's not overdone it's not overlabored and it's a snapshot really and before moving on to the next bit of the story where you um, which is done organically yeah i mean that scene tony for you on the lifeboat knowing this is like this is eight years after the war this is 1953 but for you watching an old movie you've been the young I'm, I'm picking on you deliberately as the younger one of the trio here was that quite unsettling for you seeing that sort of scene mate you know like when the people are dying on the lifeboat and they're just throwing them overboard you know we can expect in modern day movies but for a 50s movie is it like oh blimey I didn't realise that it would have been this dramatic or graphic or realistic not really no I just see it that's how it was you know yeah. everything else was sort of filmed and set like that there was sort of no old bard with it you know that's exactly what happened it was to survive wasn't it and I suppose the whole film was just like that really every, it was all, all worked as a team but every man for himself sort of thing as well at the same time yeah and, and as Stephen said earlier as well mate we don't really see the enemy you know no. sometimes we see like both sides of the story and all this but we don't see any U-boats specifically till the end as, as he pointed it's out it's like Jaws it is isn't it there's another bit like Jaws actually is, is the bit where the two guys at the beginning the two new officers turn up and Jack Hawkins is a bit like Quint and Brodie and Hooper are turning up on his boat you know <laughs> very similar but yeah with the, the, they are there in the lifeboats and you know you, you get the panic of getting off the boat in the first place and there's yeah. you know some that don't have their life jackets and stuff and that the consequences of that but you know, you see the ship in flames going down and the men, well, I say the men bobbing in the water. It's, it's uh, one one of the scenes. It's clearly just figurines. <laughs> but, um, but otherwise, you know, you see the, the boat going down and how that's your lifeline, that's your hope, literally going up in flames or going down in flames. And the battle against despair then, when they're, they're there floating in the water, you know, hundreds of miles away from any help. Yeah. It's just mind-boggling to try and work out how that could possibly survive that and obviously you know the one of the characters Denim Elliott's one the mental impact mm-hmm. of, of that leaves him in a, an unfit state to continue but it is the new mom of the, the film in a way getting to that stage the ship goes down and what that means and it certainly breaks it up in the sense that a lot of the familiar characters that we've got to know then leave the film what we'll do is we'll take the break at that point and we'll do the village hall of fame in a second before we discuss that final quarter of the movie where the new boat and the new you know captaincy takes place but for me up to this point what was interesting we've all seen a thousand submarine movies haven't we always sit on a submarine and it's what they call them hunter killers or the silent killers or whatever you have to be quiet and it's the the pinging of the the radar and keep quiet lads we're being you know tracked up above and we're seeing it from the other side we're seeing the difficulties that the guys on the top of the water were having trying to track or avoid an enemy that is completely invisible completely and fascinating that that radar thing that they use with the the wheels that they were turning yeah to track them incredible i loved it that was the bit that sort of stood out for me it's like ah we're seeing it from another 
another angle, this whole story. It does sense it from the other side, and particularly with the, the angle that you're, you're used to having this the claustrophobia of the submarines, and this is almost a, an agoraphobia with the, the openness of the sea out there, and that there could be anything anywhere out there coming to them, even though they get periodic updates that there's eight submarines around your area, and then, oh no, there's 12. Oh no, there's 18. Yeah. It, it's still, you know, that big wide open space that the, the fear of what's out there in the dark, as it were, although it's the unseen area beneath the sea that's dark to them as well. Absolutely petrifying in, in a way, that unknown. Yeah. I think you definitely, you definitely see the fear when they break down and they're mm-hmm. almost like a sitting target. Um, well, that's another great scene that they, the playing out the anguish on people's faces at, at sat waiting, absolutely vulnerable, belly up as it were, where the, the, absolutely no defence and are a sitting target that is another key scene that you're raising there the anguish on the faces of them of them playing out and there's the hammering yeah you'd be pupping yourself wouldn't you yeah, yeah. everyone else is with you in the convoy have all gone because they don't want to get targeted as well and that's it you're just there you can't do anything if it's going to happen it's going to happen you're dead and yeah it's as simple as that yeah it was, it was great to see it from that side of the water than from a submarine's point of view which we've seen like i said a thousand times in a thousand different movies should we take a little walk up to the Hall of Fame, guys? Because I think there's quite a few people we need to talk about. Stephen, get your keys, mate. So it's the Village Hall of Fame. For people new to the podcast, the Village Hall of Fame is something we set up quite casually a few episodes (laughs) back that has developed into a bit of a monster. Well, it's turned into a monster for Stephen because he is the curator of the Village Hall of Fame. It's not a Hall of Fame. We're not that worthy, as we always say. Basically, what we do is we celebrate anybody in the movies that we review that has appeared on the show three times. And it could be an actor, actress, composer, director, producer, whatever. Stephen, current standings, we've got nigh on 400 inductees into the Hall of Fame at the moment. Oh, yeah. And, Yeah. And thousands of names on the list of potential yeah. people waiting in the wings yeah i just had a quick glimpse down this cast list i'm going to sit back potentially for the next 20 minutes <laughs> <laughs> while you tell us who's been inducted and who's appeared for the 87th time or the first time <laughs> take it away sir. Oh, right <clears throat> deep breath so people making their second appearances uh, we've only got nine of those <laughs> okay so warwick ashton who was previously in Dunkirk. Arthur Bentley, who was previously in Pool of London. Walter Fitzgerald, in which we serve. Lawrence Hardy, man who haunted himself. Barry Letts, Scott of the Antarctic. Uh, Liam Redmond, Yield to the Night. Donald Sinden huh? was in Doctor in the House. John Stratton was in Seven Days to Noon. And the director of this film, Charles Friend, who previously had him with uh, Scott of the Antarctic. Wonderful. Okay. So, as far as those making their um, their debut and actually getting into the, the Hall of Fame with free appearances, mm. we've got six of those. <laughs> I knew it, okay. <laughs> so, we've got uh, Meredith Edwards, who was previously in Dunkirk and the Lavender Hill Mob. 
Uh, Denim Elliott finally makes it hey, in nice after uh, being in Holly Inn and the AIV and, of all things, uh, Robin and Marion. Oh, of course, he was Will Scarlet, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, alongside uh, the, one of the two Ronnies there, Ronnie Barker. Yeah. yeah. Harold Godwin was in Dan Busters and uh, One Good Turn. Uh, Moira Lister, uh, Troubling Star and Pool of London. Alec McGowan, Private Progress and Night to Remember. Yep. And then Barney Steele within X the Unknown and Night to Remember. Right. So we've got um, six new inductees, which is <laughs> good to have to uh, you know, push out drop. the pews a little bit more. Um, yes. See if we can get them in. Okay, so by my reckoning, we've got some sevens, some eights, possibly even more. But we have got a few more um, who are making their repeated appearances, yeah. We've got six who are making their fourth appearance. Okay, you're just going to um, rattle off the names from now on. Absolutely, because... yeah. <laughs> they, from now onwards, it's uh, only the twos and the threes, really, yeah. uh, because otherwise it'd be a, for another couple of hours, like you say. So, uh, making their fourth appearance, we've got Stanley Baker. Mm-hmm. Jack Hawkins, yep. Glyn Houston, the, the marvellous Megs Jenkins, yes. uh, Richard Leitz and Paddy Smith. Okay, a mixture of familiar and unfamiliar names. There. Yeah, there's, a, there's one or two in there, you go, who? <laughs> and then some of you, you go, oh, yeah, I like seeing them in some, exactly. something. Yeah. We've got one making their sixth appearance, which is uh, Russell Waters, which I thought was a, a, a very apt name for this film. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> He's he's a distant relation to Sandy Balls, isn't he? (laughs) Charlie Seaman. (laughs) So, uh, we've got one person making their seventh appearance, uh, which is Fred Macon. Oh, Um, okay. Or Machon, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Mason. M A C H O N. Oh, right, okay. We do have four people making their eighth appearance. Yeah. Which is Sam Kidd. He's creeping up lately, Sam Kidd. He, he had is, a very yeah. quiet um, start, didn't he? Yeah. Eileen Lewis. Okay. Jim O'Brady, whose name we're starting to become a bit more familiar with as well. He's, yeah. he's, and Bruce Sutton, might say. That's the one. That's eight appearance, yeah. We do have somebody making their tenth appearance. Oh. Um, <laughs> and this is a, a very familiar name to us. It's a, a, a guy called Michael Balkan. Is it 10 appearances now? Yeah. There's got to be some yeah. real classic stuff amongst that 10. You, you go through it and every one of them is amazing, obviously. You know, yeah. it's all stuff that is absolutely a must-see, really. So, yes, you know, thankfully, he's getting the recognition he deserves with appearances because he, he was very much a key figure in British cinema, as we've said before. Yes. We wouldn't have half of the great films that we do have um, in uh, British cinema if it wasn't for him. And finally, we do have one person making their 12th appearance. Oh, I'm looking quickly down the list, but I can't see this immediately jumping out at me. Um, uh, Fred Griffith. That's it. Is it Fred Griffith? Again, I don't know what he looks like because he's got no IMDb picture as our Fred. No, but he's, he's in there and he keeps appearing and... Uh, we love him. He, I, Whoever I, don't know, is. I can't remember who he played in the in in here. I just saw it. It was Gracie. Right, can't picture him unfortunately. But, but, but welcome yeah. again. <laughs> this is it. So we've got a, a multitude in there, and it's one, just one of those films where there's an, an, an avalanche. It sort of offsets the. A few episodes ago, when we had sightseers, where there was one person who'd been in. In a film. In one film before. Yeah. It's going to happen so, yes. because we're covering all years, aren't we? We're not. Yes. We're not restricting it to classic British movies. We're doing some modern stuff as well. That's incredible. I, I knew you may have been bothered slightly, but I didn't realise that there would have been that many names on the list this week. 
particular favourites. I'm going to turn to Tony. Oh, hello. Hello, because I know you're a big fan. This, this is going to be really random almost, but you're a big fan of Never the Twain, the sitcom, aren't you? I am. Good old Windsor. Like Windsor Davis and, and Donald Sindon, of course. So we've got an early Donald Sindon performance here. Which is yeah, he looks very young, doesn't he? He, he looks old, but he's still very young. <laughs> he's got that old face. Yeah, well, he's always got that older manner to him as well. He was always like in his thirties, you know, no matter how young he was. And and it's interesting as well that the previous Donald Sindon appearance was Doctor in the House, which we reviewed together, Tony. I think it was me and you. I don't think I've, Stephen was part of it, was he? Mate? I wasn't part of that one. No, now. but I, I know Donald Sindon's a bit of a hero. Donald Sindon, I he wasn't in Scott of the Antarctic, was he? He's one no. that you think should have been in it. That's the thing. No, no. That's, uh, it's surprising because of Never the Twain, there's a certain set of people like ourselves who recognise him immediately, but the fact that they had a good career before then yeah. is sometimes forgotten. This happens with some people who are starring in some sitcom or, or something over a late stage in life. You, you know, it's easy to miss that they had a, a good career. Um, before then, so but yes, it, the only thing he was in previously was Doctor in the House that you two did. Yeah, um, well, so I'm sure he'll, he'll well. be in again before long. But and I'll tell you what also surprised me there: Jack Hawkins and Stanley Baker, who I always put together because yeah. of, because of Zulu, possibly uh, level pegging on four appearances each, but it's four different movies, possibly. You know, this is the first time I think they've appeared together. Yeah, I think this is the first time they've appeared together. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Interesting. I love the Village Hall of Fame. Tony, you, you like going through that list as well, don't you, mate? I do. It, it confuses the heck out of me, so I'm glad I don't really have anything to do with it, um, <laughs> with all the data and whatnot. I just sit here quietly, stunned. <laughs> but you're getting to recognise the names and the faces now, you know. Yeah, yeah. They're becoming more familiar, I mean. And as Stephen said, it's, it's great to see people from... Like in the 50s that we probably know from 70s carry-on movies or later appearances on the TV, like you say, you know. I've been on Last of the Summer Wine or something. Exactly, that's what I was going to say. They're all carry-on, they're all Last of the Summer Wine future appearances for them. <laughs> you go, well, no, that's not the, the sum total of the Hickson isn't playing Miss yeah, Marple. No, no, she no. had a lot before then. And of so. course, um, your your beloved Megs Jenkins was in there, mate. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I'm not 100% sure why uh, I'm so fond of seeing Megs Jenkins. There's just something about her. I just think, oh, that's nice. Oh, I like <laughs> Megs Jenkins. She's a really good character actress, yeah. in fairness. But she just brings something to the screen. I mean, even the innocence that she was in when we did that. There's, yeah. You know, <laughs> like you said, Joan Hickson wasn't just Miss Marple in the same way that Megs Jenkins wasn't always just a housekeeper because that's always yeah. what she used to play was a housekeeper or a, f- a fussing, you know, maid or something, you know. Yeah, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you once again for doing that, mate. Can't wait to hear the end of the year one with everyone on it. It's <laughs> <laughs> a whole hour episode of you just saying names. That'd be um, awesome. Oh, wouldn't it? it'd be longer than it'd be longer than that, wouldn't it? Can you imagine? Because it has snowballed this year, hasn't it, mate? It, the work has gone up for you considerably. Yes, as we've said before, if at the onset of this we'd realised how it was going to play out, we might have said, "Well, let's set the bar at five rather yeah. than three but it's far too uh, far down the road now to backtracking on that yeah, one so we're not changing we, it, we just have to um, keep it as it is yeah that's it let's not change anything now so we're heading towards the end of the film now the final act the final sort of last 15-20 minutes and, then, and he's lost the ship obviously the ship's been torpedoed and Ericsson gets promoted he's promoted to commander yes and Lockhart is now his number one he gets promoted as well 
Well, he gives him the choice of his own ship or to carry on being his number one, as it were. And he immediately makes the choice of deciding to stick with him, which obviously we're glad to see because otherwise there would have been either two separate threads going on as a story or, or one of them would come out of it. And so that works and, and you can see that the, the Bond, you know, he's, he's not worried about getting his own command or, or getting his own, you know, medals he could have got, which gets mentioned later on. The main thing is that it's a partnership that works and they both recognise that. It's not just one following the other. The other one, you know, Jack Hawkins' character does want him, but he's trying to put it across in such a way that he's giving him the choice, even though he, he does want him to, to come with him. Which is great. And that shows a bond between men in such a strange situation. Yeah. It's great as well that it shows the progress over the last four years, five years, whatever it is, because we've seen Donald Sindon at the beginning, who was, as you said, a journalist. He wasn't an yeah. officer at all. And he's given the chance to be number one, and he goes with him. So it just proves how much respect and how much trust Jack Hawkins has put in to this man over the past few years, over the course of the war. He's mentored him because when he first has to take over as number one because they can't replace the previous fella, he says that, you know, he'll have to do it for the time being. And he sort of says, well, I can carry on doing it longer than that. And he's going, well, I'll help you. Yeah. Um, so he's obviously mentored him and, and seen the promise in him and decided, yeah, well, we'll that's the way we'll go on it. But um, it's worked, obviously. And you can see that in the scene that Tony brought up about the, the lifeboats. And there's Jack Hawkins on one of them and Donald Sindon on the other. And they're both performing this leadership role of trying to keep people together. Yes. And it just shows that they're, they're working in parallel there, which is great. Yeah, it's just proved that all the doubts that, you know, we had as an audience and Jack Hawkins had as a, as a commander were, you know, not valid you know he's, he's proved himself worthy and we're heading towards the end of the war now because on this new ship uh it's basically an anti-submarine escort isn't it i think it's just literally escorting the convoys that's their duty now it's not hunting submarines or u-boats as such it's providing a safe passage across the atlantic for the other ships yeah but there is a point where they do actually go after a u-boat isn't it in this last final segment yeah and that turn at the at the very end there is poignant because it's the hunted becoming the hunter yeah which does demonstrate the larger turn in the in the, the way the war is playing out I'm not going to sort of go right towards the end here because there isn't really a, a finale to this, is there? It's it just sort of like, okay, this is the strange thing about this film. Is it, as, as you said at the beginning, it's it, it all flows into one, this movie, Stephen, doesn't it? It's not like separate stories, but there is an element of separation. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's one man's story, which is Jack Hawking, who is dominating throughout the movie, as we said. But it's not as if there's a big final battle as such or a massive great end of the war final conclusion to this. No, and it, it is organic in that way. That, I mean, it's based upon a book, isn't it, I think? Yeah. So it's quite, you know, it's, it's got that narrative and it's adapted incredibly well. I mean, you know, you can have great books that are don't transfer to the screen in any way well. And also you can sometimes have quite rubbish, <laughs> rubbish stories in a book that are actually make great films. But in this, you know, the no knowledge really about, you know, it seems well acclaimed as the actual original book, but um, I've not read it. But certainly the way that this narrative plays out, they've done it. That it is a flow without it feeling any way disjointed by the way that there's the different elements and the different scenes that happen. It's, it is all just one continuous. And as you say, using Jack Hawkins as the mainstay to carry you know the, the plot through is is one side in in a way, but it certainly doesn't feel like. It's ignoring the stories of the people around him. Um, it's, it's almost a documentary of yeah. J- 
Jack Hawkins military career. Did you get the documentary feel to it, Tony? Did it feel a bit more like a, a real life thing rather than a, a, a written story? Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably the right thing to say. I mean, I didn't at the time until you just said it. It's um, almost, isn't it? It's almost like a this is the actual events that happened and, and we're going to be focusing on the Jack Hawkins character, yeah? Yeah. Hmm. It feels like it's a true story. Well, Nicholas Montserrat that wrote the book, I yeah. didn't realise this until this morning, he served on corvettes and frigates in the Atlantic for four years, and that's what, you know, the book The Cruel Sea was based on. But guess what he was before the war? It could he have been a, a possibly a freelance journalist? He was a journalist, yes, and then became <laughs> oh, a reserve yes. because of his interest in sailing. Yeah, so it's all there. So basically the author of the book is Donald Sindon. Well, it's no wonder he is a character that, that you can easily have sympathy for and feel empathy for as well, really. I think that the, there's a couple of extra sides to that character beyond what he's doing performing on the ship. But the whole thing about not getting involved with somebody, you know, romantically at home because of the, the element of loss. Do you want somebody to, to have somebody to lose? And then it's turned around on him that having somebody to come back for is the way to look at it. Although the Jack Hawkins character is kind of a focal point for the story, the person who is us, seeing how this is playing out, is the Donald Sindon character, seeing you know from the naivety of a, a new recruit, seeing it through to the end and seeing what happens around him. You can see how the author's point of view is, is Donald Sindon's, really. And I think as we've just been talking over the last few minutes that Tony has said about the documentary style and all that lot, that's what's been, it's not bugging me, but there was something about this movie that sets it apart from other war movies. And I think it's the fact that it's it's the realism, as we said, the harshness of like when the bodies were dying on the lifeboat and they're just casting them aside, or the scene where Hawkins depth charges a U-boat and ends up killing all the merchant seamen that are floating in the water, you know, and he's the friendly fire bit that we were talking about. And I think it's that side of it, because for me, like, I was, I was thinking this would have been more jarring for Tony going back to an older movie but this, this is still only 1953 and it's like incredibly realistic and it's that documentary feel to it I think is what has made it stand out for me as you've discussed before at various times the way in which war films are done there were some that were done like during the war or immediately after it yeah which were done in a certain style and then there was a period whereby there was more of a rounded view taken, like with this, where they're trying not to continue to highlight the Germans as the enemy or the Japanese as the enemy because we're trying to move on from the war now. We don't want to just like keep bashing them. We want to try and have some reconciliation and move on. And then after enough time has passed, they can start making it perfectly clear that the, the villains are a particular nationality or, or, or whatever, but um, trying to label it slightly different. But um, this is in the, that period where they're, they're having to make sure that the enemy isn't the Germans because they're trying to now rebuild and not just have it that there's animosity to the Germans continuing and we potentially end up in another war situation further down the line. It's, it's, um, it's an interesting thing that happens with war films at this time. Any favourite bits for you, Tony, or, or anything you need to speak about before we start winding this up, mate? Ah, I wouldn't say it's a favourite bit, but it's a bit... That sort of got a bit of a lump in my throat, really. Yeah. When he's on the new on his new ship, and he opens up the uh, or the intercom, I suppose it had been called back then. 
and he can hear the screams of the men from his previous ship when they were in the engine room sort of on fire, I yeah. suppose, when they were sinking, and just how it shakes him up. It's great, isn't it? Because he doesn't say anything as well. It's no No, there's nothing there. said. He, he, he's literally just walking around, he's spitting his new ship, waiting for his plans, and then... Just that happens. He's getting the memories of the previous encounter. Yeah. 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 Quite a stark reminder. What about the bit? Um, Do you remember the bit where the boat breaks down for like 24 hours and the tension there where they're just floating helplessly? mm. That was edge of the seat stuff for me there because it's like I was feeling that tension. Again, it was almost that bit like we were saying about, you know, know that bit where we said about, you know, when we see a submarine movie and the guys are there being silent and quite, it it was a similar thing reversed that they were all up there helpless, just floating, waiting for the repairs to be done. And it was the hammering, hammering, like trying to muffle the sound of like all the tools and, you know, trying to get the ship working again. Yeah, I think that was probably the most tense bit of the movie, to be Mm. fair. I mean, when they was up battling and they were picking up on the radar, um, actual like U-boats and whatnot, it's sort of like fair game, isn't it? Because they're both after one another. Yeah. But just sitting ducks there, they couldn't have done anything. Uh, and can, uh, I, can I say as well, uh, <laughs> I love Moira Lister. Okay, we saw her in Troubling Store, I think it was, and something else. I hated her in this. She's the one that's termed cheating on Denim Elliott. Yeah. That story where... Uh, she, doesn't she say she's going off with a film producer or something? She's going off to have an interview, or yeah. basically an audition. And the audition, Denim Elliott then picks up mm. a phone call. At the phone call. To the, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Unbeknownst to the person who's calling it, reveals that it's the audition might be a bit more casting couch than anything else. Um <laughs> And certainly reveals that not only is that happening, but, you know, him being described as a clot of a husband obviously makes him realise that not only is, is she doing the dirty, but also that she's been potentially speaking negatively about him, which you can tell a bit of a strained relationship anyway with the fact that she's not all over him, you know, saying she's going to miss him and all this kind of stuff. It's um oh, well, let me know next time you come back. Yeah, you know. <laughs> And the fact that you didn't like her, Scott, I think is um, is what you were meant to. So she's obviously played that part well. Yeah, but she was. Oh, I liked her because she was in the early Hancock's half hour. That's why I've always liked mm. Moira Lister. Uh, and it's just for her to play a bitch is is refreshing. And and also that scene and similar scenes like that take it away from that documentary feel that we've had. The whole Megs Jenkins thing, like you said, Stephen, which was a highlight for you, and the, these relationships back home make it more of a traditional war movie. But there's just still this element of the realism, um, which I think which sets this movie apart from other war movies. And the central performance of Jack Hawkins is outstanding in this. And at the end of it, when you realise in the whole of the five years, the six years, they only sank two U-boats, right? That was it. We, was we, it worth it? Yeah. <laughs> That just proves how successful the German fleet was. And as somebody might say, the futility of war, you know. It's like, what was it worth it? Yes, it bloody was at the end of the day. But over this whole five, six-year period, they only sank to you, but incredible, really. That futility of the endeavour, but at the end, was it actually worth it or not? You know, we understand that as podcasters. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this is absolutely, it puts it in context that the human loss not just with the loss of life, but to some extent the, the relationships. On the other side, flip side of the coin, you've got the relationships that are, are built. And we know from other films, the trope, that there's people who serve together that end up, they have more reliance upon each other or more trust with each other than the people they, you know, they marry or, or anything. Um, 
because they've gone through such a strained situation with each other, having to rely upon each other on, you know, out there in the Atlantic, just the two of them or whatever, that that bond will never never cease sort of thing. Yeah. So this is a rare film in which it shows the at-home and the at-sea or in-service but at the same time and get great compliment to each other rather than it feeling disjointed. So certainly for for me, yeah, this film, I, I liked it a lot more than I, I expected to. Yeah. So, would you recommend it, Stephen? I would actually. Yeah, um, it certainly would be difficult, I think, to sell to a number of people because you know you're saying about a black and white film of of a, a ship out in in the war in the the North Atlantic um, yeah. being hunted by submarines. A, a lot of people film, wouldn't it? wouldn't it wouldn't get you know have any interest in that. Yeah. But the fact that it, that it is the human interest bit of it and how that actually plays out. The, the war is a backdrop for the plot being about the development of the characters and development of people in relation to each other. And, you know, just a snapshot and an insight into how human beings are. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely to be recommended to see in order that you can pick up on, on that and see humanity facing the worst and being at its best in some ways. There you go. Tony. Hello. Your first time watch. That's a bit dis- disconcerting the way you said that. <laughs> Your your first time watch. Yes. Would you recommend this to anybody, mate? Or yeah, you, yeah, because yeah, definitely watch it. Definitely watch it and watch it for what it is. Don't be going, oh, it's an old black and white war film. Just watch it. Have your own experience with it. It is a bit of a bloke's film, though. Yeah, it is. It, it, um, it but is. don't be put off by that. Still watch it. Yeah. Excellent. Glad you enjoyed it. For me, if I was to give it a rating, I'd say four stars out of five. But watching it this time round properly for the first time since I was a kid, I think I've when realized. When it was released. No, it wasn't <laughs> when it was released. <laughs> oh, I've realized that this has always been in like the top 10 lists of like great British war movies. And now I can see why. In certain ways, it is a typical British war movie. You get exactly what you're going for. Battles, human interest stories, fantastic performances from Jack Hawkins and Stanley Baker and all those guys involved. But when you scratch under the surface, it is just something a little bit special, I think. Because of the added realism, the interaction between the characters is just something a little bit different, I think. And and a fantastic job done by all involved. There wasn't a bad performance in this. The tension was incredible in places. And the sadness as well. You know, we've got these guys turning to alcohol, being cheated on by their wives. Megs Jenkins, you know, that, that whole human interest side of things as we've spoke about. Fantastic film. Just a fantastic war film. A fantastic British film. So highly recommended from me. Absolutely. Okay, chaps. Uh, that's the cruelty from 1953. I believe the three of us have agreed to get together again. Ooh. Yes. It's almost Halloween, so we three should meet again. <laughs> Let's take a short break, and we'll find out what we're going to be watching. Okay, guys, that was The Cruel Sea. Now, Tony has sort of recommended the next one for when we three meet next time, and we're, we're heading into familiar World War Two territory again, mate, I believe. We are. Don't put me on the spot like that. Yeah, <laughs> we are. <laughs> That's all you need to say. I'll do the rest. Okay, we're going back to 1961. Some may dispute this is a British movie because of the amount of non-British stars and personnel behind the scenes that are involved, but... 
I probably don't care about the haters. <laughs> well, no, because we've got our own sort of like description for this type of movie. It's a British international movie. Is that a fair way of describing it? Yeah, yeah. and you've got David Niven. That, that's you all know, you need. Uh, which is, is more than enough. Yeah. But there are other stars. Well, uh, and it's directed by a, by a British person. It's based upon a novel by a British person. Yeah. It's got Anthony Quill in it as well, who people often forget is from Lancashire. Yeah. Uh, Stanley Baker again. So, you know, as, as you've said, there's any number in there. I mean, you, Richard Harrison, James Robertson, Justice. I mean, that's all you need, isn't it? Brian Forbes got it, is so. in there. Brian Forbes, yeah. Yeah, so. Uh, and also, the whole story is to rescue 2,000 British soldiers that are trapped. So I think, yeah, More definitely than... is. Okay, well, if you haven't guessed, we're going back to 1961. It's The Guns of Navarone, directed by J. Lee Thompson, based on the novel by Alistair MacLean. Briefest of summaries, a team of Allied saboteurs were assigned an impossible mission, infiltrate an impregnable Nazi-held island and destroy the two enormous long-range field guns that prevent the rescue of 2,000 trapped British soldiers. This used to be on every Christmas or bank holiday, and I... Pretty sure I've seen it in the last 10 years, but I can't remember exactly. Now, you've watched this literally last week, Tony, which is why you're bringing it to the table. Yeah, while I was watching it, I thought I'd give you guys a message. Um, and we'll have a go at that one. Stephen, you reviewed it for a former podcast you were involved in as well. We did. We we reviewed it on HOM mm. and you know, gave it a, a favourable review. So, I'm in no way reluctant to go back and watch it again. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure whether I've actually watched it since then, to be fair. Yeah. So that might be quite interesting to see what I see this time around that I might not have seen last time. But um, certainly happy to go back and I think it's a, a, a jolly good suggestion. Wonderful. Excellent idea. Right, well, hopefully, once we get that recorded, it's probably going to be the other side of the new year before that sees the light of day. Easter. Easter, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. again, bank holiday. It probably would tie in nicely. Is it an Easter bank. film? Is there any rabbits in it? Or no, not that I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, thanks for getting up bright and early on a Sunday morning to do this. As always, well, I've not been to bed. Not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you all in a few weeks' time. Take care, chaps. See you later. Merry Christmas. Bye. <laughs> Happy New Year. Take care. Shut. <laughs> Bon voyage. Good luck. Thank you.
the British end up, sir. I'm sick of pains. <laughs>